Thanks, Bridget. Um, thanks for inviting me to speak. Um, thank you, everybody, for welcoming me. Um, thanks, Sanner. Thank you for everybody who organized this meeting. Um, I know some of you here today from other meetings, but not all of you. Um, so thank you for basically listening and taking me in. Um, I tend to talk a lot, tend to ramble. I'm gonna try not to do so much, um, do that so much, but I've liked the speakers in your meetings. Um, they're more freeform and longer than other speakers. I've heard people talk for like 30 minutes or so. So that seems to be okay or less or more. We're nodding, cool. Um, so kind of policing myself on that, um, just so that I don't take up everybody's time. Um, so I'm Liz, I'm in Los Angeles. Um, I'm an alcoholic. Um, tomorrow, I, I think if I'm doing math correctly, it'll be 16 months. Um, my sober date is August 19th, 2020, which yes, that means that I got sober exclusively on Zoom and um, exclusively in secular AA. Um, and that was really fortunate, honestly, that I thought to um, Google, can you be in a recovery meeting? Can you be in AA if you don't believe in God? And lo and behold, there were meetings for that. And um, I, had, I had tried like, um, other programs. And so I might talk a little bit about that. And um, just a heads up, um, I do identify as an alcoholic, but I also like what a lot of um, people say, which is that they're a person in recovery, because um, my story is going to include things about mental illness, about um, family history, family trauma, probably, you know, codependency, that kind of thing, though I haven't gotten um, all the work I should on those, but it's what led me here. Um, it's also going to be a lot about the pandemic um, because I got sober during the pandemic. I didn't meet any people in person until maybe July of um, 2021, which when you think about it, I guess is not everybody's typical experience. I know maybe two other people from my meetings um, who have done this on Zoom and who are still like around. Um, and people often say, I don't know how you did it. Like, that's so, wow. Like you didn't have the community. You didn't have the people to talk to before and after to have coffee with and yes, but I don't know anything else. That's the thing. Um, it's funny, I'm in grad school, which I'll talk about too, because, um, the pandemic happened and instead of drinking myself to death, which was option one that I tried, <laughs> I joined Alcoholics Anonymous and started getting my master's in business. And I am a drunk English major. Those are two things I never thought that I would do. If you told like 20 year old me, 25 year old me that I was doing those things, the first part I believe is that there's, there was a global pandemic. I'd be like, okay, like that scientifically makes sense. And then um, you're in AA. I might be like, okay, it's probably good that you stopped drinking, but like you're in a program for it. Like you go to meetings and talk about yourself. Like you talk to other people um, and tell your shit and like learn from them. And like, you know, 
And even if I told them, no, it's not, it's not what you think it's, and it's not most, a lot of the meetings don't even call themselves that, you know, it's, I still wouldn't believe it, but the least believable part would be the business major part because um, um, it's not really me, quote unquote, but it is. But getting back to my main point, I do a lot of circular talking, which comes from my mother, who I'll talk about a lot. But the grad school class ahead of us who graduated after having a year in person and then a year online was miserable, 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 because they had had an in-person graduate, graduate school experience, right? All I knew was the getting sober online experience. And in some ways it was e easier I'd never been to, I'd never been to um, an in-person AA meeting. I came close a couple of times, asking a really close friend of like 20 years now, like I might need to go to a meeting, would you take me to one? And he said, yes. And that's one of the first people I confided in when I decided to do this. But to me, I guess I felt like I had to get myself right first, which is not accurate or smart, but it is what it is. Um, so um, I'm originally from the Washington DC area suburb in Northern Virginia. Um, I have parents who are still married and a brother who's two and a half years younger. And um, oh, kind of my disclaimer, I hope this is relatable, even though you know all of our experiences are kind of specific and mine is specific to the pandemic and depression, anxiety. I, I found that there's, especially in free thinking and secular and atheist and agnostic meetings, people are more, inter uh, more interested and willing to hear about those things too, because they see that that goes hand in hand with um, what I call about myself, the reason I'm so messed up and working on myself and admitting like what's going on. But I'm gonna read something just briefly because last term, I'm, I just finished my fourth out of five terms. Um, I'm gonna graduate from school in April, crossing my fingers. Um, we had a class in conflict negotiations and our first assignment before we even met the professor was a journal entry. And as people mocked on Slack slash traumatized, like shared it, they're like, did everybody finish the assignment? Um, the psych exam? Oh wait, journal entry? It was hardcore. Um, she had us, I mean, she, this is true um, and this is, valid and we only shared it with the professor and no one else, but she was like, how you handle conflict comes originally from your family. So she asked us to describe our family of origin, um, siblings, how we relate to them. And then she asked us to describe the first conflict we remember within our family of origin. Um, and I'm just gonna read the paragraph that I wrote about this because it's sadly relevant. So hold on just a second. Um, I'm nervous, but trying not to show it. Um, you know how that is. Um, so I had to write my earliest conflict. So my maternal grandmother died suddenly when I was four and a half years old. And I was upset and confused by the news. And I remember asking why, why? And I was told granny's heart stopped. Um, which looking back on it, like everybody's heart stopped when they died. And it's kind of a scary thing to tell a kid, like you worry that your heart could stop. They might've said in her sleep or something, right? Um, and I wanted to go with my parents from Virginia to Detroit for the funeral. And they said, no, that I was too young. And I was sobbing. Um, I do think my parents should have let me go and left my little brother at 
home, but they didn't. Um, they said I was too young. Um, and we stayed behind at the house of a family friend. And the important thing here too, is this was also like a coded lie. Like, yes, her heart stops, but everybody's heart stops when she died. Um, and I interpreted this um, as she had a heart attack. She didn't. Um, she was an alcoholic and an addict who OD'd. She was 50. And the way I found that out was my mom was taking some sort of medication. Maybe it was Advil, maybe it was a pain pill. And she was washing it down with like a glass of wine. And my dad said, careful, honey, that's how your mom died. And I was in the kitchen and overheard that comment. And that's how I found out that my grandmother was an alcoholic and had died of it. And then the little pieces of the story come out, you know, later on from various family members. And I had decided by probably that point that my mother was an alcoholic. She wasn't a crash your car, get us taken away kind of alcoholic. She was a depressive, disappear kind of alcoholic and occasionally too much of a convivial person kind of alcoholic. Um, she's never gotten treatment. Um, she stopped not during my, I think she stopped during her pregnancies. Um, and she stopped when she was really sick um, in 2019, but she still drinks to this day. Um, there's a lot of alcoholism on both sides of my family. Um, but this is interesting because then I had to say, what was my lesson learned from this in my negotiations journal, right? And I wrote, secrecy and separation can be used for self-protection and conflict avoidance. The real truth can be found in observed history. So that kind of says a lot about like what I took away from my family um, who did a lot of things right. I was need to feel the need to say that. Um, they told me they loved me every day, including my dad. And I asked him once, why does he say, I love you? And he said, because I grew up with parents that didn't say, I love you. You know, love was food on the table. Love was a house over your head. And when I met your mother, I saw that her family said, I love you and gave hugs. And I realized that if we were gonna have children, I wanted to be more like that. And I thought my dad is not a sharing person who talks about his emotions, right? Um, and that was incredibly, the fact that I asked and that he said that was really cool, right? And they were very involved in our lives. Like my mom, they coached our teams. They were room parents. Um, I, felt, I felt loved. I didn't feel heard. And I definitely felt that I was too sensitive and that I had to suppress my emotions. And um, I definitely felt like I was the weird one. And those um, things persisted and definitely contributed to my self-esteem issues, my depression, my anxiety, and why I drink. And again, kind of another disclaimer, I drink because I'm an alcoholic. I'm gonna talk a lot about what made me into the person I am, but I drink because I'm an alcoholic and that's what alcoholics do. So I didn't drink until I was 20 um, because I knew from how I handled food and how I handled friendships and how I handled my studies that I had an obsessive addictive personality. And I knew even just from context clues and my mother's drinking that there was alcohols in their family. It was actually a pact I made with my brother that I didn't expect that he'd keep up, but he did too until we were in college and I gave him his first shot, which I still feel guilty about. But, cause he was very popular in high school. He was like homecoming king and all that stuff. So when I said, I'm really giving you your first shot. He's like, I held that thing. I was like, I did too. I held to that, didn't have a drink, 
like our parents would occasionally like have wine at dinner and let us taste it. Like they were very much like, don't make this a, a bad thing, but I didn't like the taste and I didn't want to lose control. But when I drank, I drank at 20 and it was a conscious choice. My aunt had died and I was closer to her than anyone on this planet. She was my godmother. She was one of the few people I respected and loved in life who had religion and in a way that I admired. Like if I could be religious and I had tried to be religious, um, I would want to be religious like her. Like when people say, you're like, Christ was actually a good person. You're a good Christian. She was one of those, right? Um, and when she died, it was a long time from after she was declared terminal to when she passed away. And I visited her during that time. and was at her bedside for a few weeks. And like, if I could pinpoint a time where I was like, I definitely don't believe in a higher power. Like it was then I read a lot of good books, like uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Like if I did believe in a God or power, which I don't knock by the way, like I don't endorse, you know, what he says, um, and I'm not closed off to there being something out there. Um, it just would be more lazy fare, right? I don't believe everything happens for a reason. You know, I, and I was very angry. Like she wasn't quite like, why won't God take me? But she was like, why the fuck will I die? And she did try to kill herself by, by overdosing on her um, insulin because she was a type one diabetic. She'd already like, she'd had a hard life. Um, she'd been in the hospital. She'd lost an eye. She'd um, had a hysterectomy. So the fact that she died at um, 47, she died only a couple of years older than me. Crazy, right? Um, but that very con that happened in August before I went back to school for my sophomore year. And a lot of things had happened that year. I was the last person to see my best friend um, before she um, uh, attempted to kill herself. She did not succeed. Um, and she would be back at school the next year. Um, but there was that. I'd transfer schools. I was failing. Like, I was just like, I did everything right. I worked so hard. I got straight A's. One of those really anxious kids. And my favorite person died really badly. Like, really in a lot of pain. And I couldn't save my friend. And I knew, I knew. I was the last person to saw her. I wanted her to stay in my dorm room in my extra bed. And she said, I'd be fine. She'd be fine. And I knew she wouldn't be fine. And then one of our friends thought, was said, you were the person who saw her last, didn't you know? You know, don't say that, right? Um, and now I know, I wait for people to say that. They will always, there will always be one person who says, didn't you know? And even if you did know, there's nothing you can do. Um, you, can, you can be there if they reach out, you can offer all the help you can. But if somebody is determined to hurt themselves with their addiction or their depression, they're gonna do it, right? So she actually became my first drinking buddy. When I first met her, she was sober. She was an AA. And when she came back to school, she was drinking. And um, she said, I told my parents and they're on board with it. You know, she's 21. They said, we never thought you were an alcoholic. This is, this is good because my parents don't think I'm an alcoholic. Um, they don't, I did not tell them when I got sober. Um, getting sober was my decision. Um, it was something I decided I had to do. Um, and 
there are a lot of people in this whose families are either don't want to accept that maybe somebody is sick enough from drinking or drug use that it's better if they don't, whether they want to call themselves or an alcoholic or not, just it's better if I don't, but the complete abstinence feels like a red flag to some families. Like that's admitting you're really messed up and we can't be that messed up. Our family isn't that messed up. You're not that messed up. What do we have to look at ourselves? Um, so I had to realize that when I chose to do this, I wasn't going to tell my family until I was sure it stuck and I was confident in doing it. Um, so I drank for years. Um, when I first drank at 20, I drank almost a, an entire bottle of vodka with a good friend. It was a safe place. I drank almost except for that. And again, no history of drinking. Didn't know how to mix a drink. Um, just drank and it felt wonderful. It shut my brain off. I kept saying everybody should be drunk all the time. It was like magic. Um, and looking back on it, if I'd been allowed to stay in my antidepressants allowed, I was grown up, but I felt really judged in my family. If I'd gotten therapy or treatment for those things, maybe I wouldn't have become such a hardcore drinker, but it was also in my blood. It was also something that was going to happen, right? Um, but I was a binge drinker from day one. I drank to get drunk. Um, I'd go through periods where I didn't drink. Um, I would do a sober month every couple of years, basically to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. Um, though I didn't say that, I was just taking a break, right? Um, and I always drank vodka. It was clear and I was clumsy. Um, it made me feel normal. It made me feel social. It was the first time I was able to go to parties. The first time I was able to date, I was so self-conscious and full of self-hatred. And um, there were a lot of embarrassing situations and close calls. Um, and I really didn't like people to help me. Big theme of it is me telling people to leave me. That was a theme on campus where I'd just say, just leave me, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm lying on the ground in the middle of campus. I wasn't fine, right? Um, there was a time in my early thirties in Los Angeles when I woke up on the lawn of a producer's house, great house in Hancock Park. My friend was the producer's um, assistant and ghostwriter. And I woke up in my bathing suit because we'd been in the pool in the hot tub and covered with like a blanket. And my arms were so bruised. And I like woke up in the dew and I like walked in the house, found my clothes and like drove home, like so shaky. Later on, I would thank my friends for taking care of me. And they're like, we tried to bring you inside. You fought us. You said, leave me here. I'm fine. You don't, you don't need to do. No. No, no, and that's what the bruises were from. Um, I think they call that like anti-dependent or hyper-independent. <laughs> like, I don't want anyone to worry about me, which also will explain why, you know, I chose to get sober without telling anyone or almost anyone. So another part of my story, which is hard to talk about because I don't want to encourage it, but I, I think it's a lot of people's and it's in the big book too, if you read, if you read the big book. Um, I moderated, you know, um, when I wasn't binge drinking, I would, I would, um, you know, have my sober months and then my, my weeks where I only drank two to four drinks. And then when I realized I had a problem <coughs> and there was a trigger event for that, um, I was drinking way too much at a job that I hated. 
um, that was taking advantage of me and where I was the only person in the office who spoke English. Um, I felt very alone. I had a very long commute. I had um, a boyfriend who had PTSD um, who was living with me and was um, closed off. It was the loneliest I'd ever felt being around the most people. And um, there was one week where I, I was calling in sick to work. I was drinking all day. My friends on the couch kind of worried about me. And I was supposed to go to um, babysit my nephews overnight. So this was like, I think 2017 or so, um, maybe even 2018. Um, and it was gonna be my nephew because my sister-in-law was pregnant. It was gonna be kind of like their baby moon, you know? And this was a big deal. I'd never been um, to watch my nephew like overnight before. This was a huge deal, right? And I was gonna be going up to the Seattle area to do this. And I was really honored and I loved my nephew. I love my nephew, I love both my nephews. But on Wednesday, I called my brother and I think I was supposed to get there Friday night. And I said, I'm so sorry, I'm not okay. I'm really depressed right now. I've been drinking all day, every day for about a week. I'm missing work and I could clean myself up and get there, but just like emotionally, I'm, I'm afraid I'd be crying. I'm afraid, like I'd never drive your child drunk in the car, but I don't think I'm okay. And he's, 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 he was amazing. My brother was amazing. He, he said, I'm hearing you. What I'm hearing is that you're not okay. And I'm going to take this off of you. Um, thank you for telling me now. I'm not like waiting till Friday. Thank you for not showing up when you're like this. It's going to be okay. It's not like you're never going to see your nephews again. Thank you for telling me. Um, and I think a couple weeks later, my sister-in-law, who I don't have a great relationship with, um, I think we're too much alike. My sister-in-law and my mom and I, I respect her a lot. Um, um, she texted me, she's a doctor and she was in some mandatory training about um, depression and suicidality and alcoholism. And she wrote me a text out of the blue saying, I'm in this training and I was just thinking about you and about your alcoholism. And um, just, it's really tough and I have a new sympathy for you. And that is the first time anybody said the word alcoholism to me, except for as a joke, which happened very early on. Um, I think two months after I started drinking, someone was like, well, of course you're an alcoholic, you and your friend, the, the friend who was an AA but wasn't anymore. But I didn't respond. I didn't know what, to, I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just a press person who's not handling her shit very well. But that situation triggered me to do a formal program of moderation management. I bought a book. I had a schedule. I did some therapy work on it. I was convinced, I could not imagine stopping drinking, but I was convinced that I could moderate it. Um, and that was really hard. And I did a lot of work on it, but I, was, I did it semi-successfully for a year, year and a half with some slips. Um, but looking back on it, I mean, it was a necessary process, right, for me to go through. And I think it's the reason I'm sober 16 months now and that hopefully this continues because I've had that experience of maybe I'm not an alcoholic, maybe I was just a partier, maybe I can go back out and just have a drink. No, because I would stick to the moderation plan and have two to four drinks three times a week, do my things like never drink two days in a row or only drink on weekends. You know, if you read any alcoholic literature, that's also a sign that you're probably an alcoholic. 
you want the label, which I accept now it's not a problem for me. But um, thing is about that is when shit gets bad, I'm going to revert to the thing that's really hard. And shit got really bad in 2019. Um, and before I say that, I will say that moderation was something that like I took helped. Like the next time I saw my brother and his kids were at, was at the beach and they're like, I'd be taking them into the waves because I would like, I was a good swimmer and um, my brother would be on the beach and I would never, if the, our beach vacations with our, our friend family are very special to me, I always make them every August. And um, I was very careful to, even though the parents themselves might be drinking around their kids and, and watching their kids, even before, the, I would not. Like if I was playing with the kids alone in outside, especially in the water, it would be a day I wasn't drinking, right? So I was playing with my nephew in the ocean, like holding him up, things like that. And they trust me because I'm a strong swimmer, but I thought they wouldn't trust me because they know. And I kept, I kept saying to my brother, thank you. And one of my, I'll call them cousins because they're like cousins. I've grown up with them, even though they're not from family said, why do you keep thanking? And this became like a, a bed conversation with most of the girl side, the girls of our age. Why do you keep thanking your brother for like letting you be with your nephews? And I told them the story of having to cancel because I drank too much and that I was now moderating. And that was kind of me coming out. That was also a helpful step for me, right? Admitting I had a problem. I think by then I was able to say I had alcohol use disorder and that I had a tendency to become an alcoholic. I do things in steps, right? <laughs> there wasn't, which makes sense. Why am I in secular A? Because there's not gonna be one big revelation for me that um, I'm, you know, a drunk and that this, you know, higher power can help me, right? That was not gonna be my thing. Instead, I had to realize it by degrees and come to it by myself. But that was the first time I talked to um, my friend family about it. I even talked to my, my parents about it. Like I did a sort of amends, which was in the book of moderation management, which is not something I've done this time around, but I talked to people and apologized for my behavior and said, I know I did these things wrong and I'm working on it and feel free to check me if I seem like I'm out of control. But like I said, things will happen. And what happened in 2019 is my mom got very, very sick in front of me while we were trapped on an international trip together in the Baltic States and Russia. And I had joined them on a bus full of senior citizens on an organized trip. And the only people, my, it was me and Ksenia, our tour guide, who was amazing, who were of um, you know late 30s, early 40s age, only same people in the bus. I think even when you get a group of people together, they're going to act a little nuts. Um, any group of people, I, I think kind of, they can have a lot of power, but they can also be really not so bright. And everybody on that bus was ignoring everybody's various conditions. And I've learned lately, this happens a lot. Someone will get sick on an international trip. That's why they have traveler's insurance. And my mom, when I first saw her in um, Lithuania, I should have gotten back on the plane. I should have turned around. I should have noped right out of that situation because I didn't know who this 90 pound corpse was and who would let her get on that plane. My brother and sister-in-law had seen her two weeks ago. I had seen her at Christmas and I'd be worried at Christmas when people would leave the room, she'd hunch over and like grab the counter. 
Um, my mom was afraid of hospitals and never went to the doctor, see her sister who was a diabetic and always in hospitals growing up, see her brother with asthma who was always in hospitals growing up. And she, it turns out, had been ignoring six different things, her COPD, her thyroid condition, which she'd actually had part of her thyroid removed and wasn't, they were anti-medication. They're still anti-medication. My mom was non-compliant. She never took the thyroid medication. She didn't like it, how, she, how it felt. She didn't bring her inhalers to Russia. When I cleaned out her drawer because I thought, I was leaving for the first time, the last time, my home of origin, and um, we all thought she was going to die. And my brother said, get the jewelry, get, and I took, I took all her meds because I didn't want, and then I was worried that I took her means away of possibly killing herself, and I wasn't sure if it was good or bad, but I, there were prescriptions and drugs for heart disease, COPD, her, her thyroid condition going back years in their original box, never taken. But I'm on this trip, and I'm the only one who sees what's going on. And everyone is calling me crazy and overreacting. And my mom is yelling at me for not having a, a good time on this trip. I paid for you to be on this trip. Why are you not having a good time? And it turns out, you know, it's informally called a thyroid storm and it can mimic, mimic psychosis, you know? Um, it can mimic um, bipolar behavior. Um, but what I saw was just my mom who had always been great to other people. She was great for show. She was a teacher. She's an extroverted introvert. But to me, I had always been the person she'd shit on when her best friend was dying, when her sister was dying, when things were wrong. I was the person that she was cruel to. So people were like, my mom's being mean. I'm like, really? This is how she always is to me. It's a little worse. But... And by the end of the trip, they knew she was sick. Um, I was scheduled to leave um, because I was leaving the trip in St. Petersburg. They were going on to um, Moscow. And I realize I'm preaching, I'm approaching um, 30 minutes. So I'm gonna wrap this part of the story up and get to my sobriety and um, what helped me. But this is the beginning of the end, right? Um, so at this point I've been moderating um, and I'm on this trip desperately trying. I waited two days. The first day, if you look back at my text messages, my friend said, how's the trip? I'm like, confidentially, I'm really, really worried about my mom and I have to figure out how to get her help and get her out of here. And I waited two, two days before I called my brother. And the first thing he said is, we realize she's sick. We are of the opinion we can't do anything until she moves closer to us and his wife. But then he backtracked a little bit, right? Because by this point, I'm literally taking videos of my mom and now in a wheelchair. Like she was mobile at the time, hanging on to me. She was fainting. Um, she was starving herself at this point too. She had anorexia and was really bragging about how she was thin and, you know, um, borrowing a sweater that um, I was wearing and saying, look at how it hangs off of me. Like picking all the things that had always been mean and being extra mean about them, but now they're about her sickness that she's denying she's having. And I didn't even we weren't gonna get her to a doctor there, but I was trying to get her home early to Virginia and have my brother meet her because they listened to my brother. But my brother, by the end of my trip, by, by St. Petersburg, my brother was talking to the other parents on the trip who were the people from that beach family, right? The parents who by this point did admit that my mom was sick, but that it was hard before we crossed over into Russia. This is how I became a cigarette smoker. I'm taking a smoke break with Marie, who's like an aunt to me and I said, so what do you think about, can I get her on a plane with me when I leave St. Petersburg? I'm gonna reroute to Dulles and I'm gonna have Eric meet me there. And she said, Lizzie, you know, your mom will never go for that. 
but I'll tell you what I did do. I got a wheelchair for um, Russia and it's at the, it's at the hotel. Later, my mom would say that lady made me take a wheelchair, right? So long story short, I left St. Petersburg certain that my mother would die sobbing the whole way home and everybody still thought I was being overdramatic. Um, I had been the one who had to help her off the toilet, who was following her. Um, and that past day and a half, I'd started putting in my earbuds um, so that my dad would pay attention to be the one to take care of her if I was going to leave on time. I also looked at staying extra in Moscow and going with them to Moscow. But one, no one had listened to me the whole time. And two, I had to get back to save my job, right? And two days after I left, she collapsed. Um, and her spleen burst. She had an emergency splenectomy and then woke up two days later and everybody thought she was better. The rest of the trip went home. Of course she had color. Um, of course she looked better. She was hooked up to oxygen and food and she hadn't been eating or breathing. Um, but that, but I don't know why everybody thought that was fine. Like she was already sick and then she completely collapsed. She went into a coma and we had to figure out, is she going to die in Russia? Are we bringing her home? And this is especially traumatic for me because as parentified as I was, sorry to use that word, as someone who had been with my mom at the bedsides of her best friend and her sister, I knew that my mom did not want to die hooked up to tubes. And I had left her to die hooked up to tubes. And I knew that I'd been doing that when I, when I left the St. Petersburg. So it was filled with guilt and shit and awfulness. And then I proceeded to try to rescue her. I flew back and forth from LA to DC every other weekend. I'm always there for a Friday or a Monday so I could see the rounds and talk to the doctors and give the full accounting of my mom's history because my dad was trying not to, um, he needed to make sure it was all paid by the insurance company. So he didn't want to admit that my mom had a pre-existing condition. So I was the first person to say, does anyone know that the scar on her neck is from half her thyroid being removed? They're like, no, because they still didn't know. Was, so like, I was trying to give relevant information and I was flying back and at the same time, a major project of mine was falling apart. And I was, had to fly to Tokyo in the middle of a typhoon to save it. Um, and the project was always dying and my mom was always dying and they'd take different turns. Eventually we got my mom back on a medical plane that stopped in six different places to refuel and get new nurses, which is how I learned that there are time zones with um, half hour increments. And she is still alive today. She was in a nursing home trying to starve herself to death. Um, there were many, that's when I cleaned out her drawers and my best friend from when I grew up told me, you can't go back there, they're hurting you. You are the designated shit person who puts shit on. And she's, and I was like, and I think I also said, why do I, why do I keep finding myself in these jobs where they take advantage of me? I work in the entertainment industry and um, I've thankfully not been sexually abused, but I have been um, emotionally abused, had things thrown at me and I've worked for people who are now in jail. And why do I keep ending up in these toxic workplaces? And my friend said, honey, you choose them. And I, that was a big old revelation. And I quit my job um, from LAX. <laughs> Wasn't planning on it, but um, after my last flight home from the last time I was at my family's origin's house. And I should have stopped then, but I didn't, right? I thought I've set boundaries with my family. I've quit my job. I'm going to be okay now. I can be a moderate drinker now for real. <clears throat> no, I woke up on my porch. Um, not knowing how I got there or how long I'd been there. My cat, to this day, um, still watches at the window whenever I go outside, even for a smoke or to get the mail or to um, put, a, um, put the trash out. Um, because I, I remember the bar I was last at. I don't know if the guys I was drinking with 
two nice gay men that I was buying shots for. I don't know if they took me home. I don't know if they got an Uber, but my neighbor was lifting me up and bringing me in. And I was like, whoa. But that wasn't when I stopped either. Instead, I realized when the pandemic happened and I've drawn boundaries with my family and I've drawn, um, um, I've quit my toxic job um, without having another one lined up, but it turned out okay. And I'd applied to grad school and I had my first um, uh, week of grad school. And I thought if I'm gonna get through this grad school, I can't keep drinking like this. And I might have to admit that the only way I know how to drink is like this. And I was drinking 24 seven alone in my apartment in the pandemic with delivery alcohol and all the things. And I picked a date, which again, don't recommend, but I said, I'm going to quit after our family vacation in August. And I did, and I told one of the cousins who had been on the bed who had heard about me trying to moderate, she's like, it sounds, she said, thank God, because not everybody has said, good for you, I'm proud of you. A lot of people have said, really? Are you sure you have, like, I've seen you fine. Because I, you know, they don't see the worst parts, or they've only seen the worst parts a couple times, right? And she said, it sounds like it's been exhausting what you're trying to do to keep it under control. And I'm here and you have people and can I check in with you? And I said, I quit when I would get home. I quit and then I think a few days later said, maybe I'll just have one last bottle of wine, which turned into two. And I woke up the next day, I was like, this. And then, so August 19th, 2020. And I did the first 30 days on my own because I'm a stubborn mofo and I had to prove that I could do it but I had a list of programs that I Googled and visited online. I had my cousin who's in traditional AA who I called and who I'd talked to before about maybe doing this. Um, and then I did the lucky Google search where I Googled, can you not believe in God and join some sort of program, right? And that's how I found the LA We Agnostics groups, which are my home groups. Um, I also go to um, Beyond Belief Toronto. People hear from that. And I've um, been to some Tesnua meetings, not enough. But um, so what has worked for me is just being open about my issues and how I came here, seeing where it came from, but also just admitting I'm an alcoholic and that's my thing and that's why I'm at where I'm at. Um, I keep going back for the fellowship and the meetings and being able to say things that I can't say to anybody else and not having anybody go, oh my God, that's horrible. Everybody going, yeah, I did that and I'm okay now. Um, I have had a sponsor and I have started working the steps that didn't turn out to be a good experience for me, but it's not something I'm opposed to going um, back to. Um, I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of listening. I'd read a lot of what they, I guess what they call quitlet, a lot of sober, sober memoirs. I follow a lot of sober people. Basically, I just listen to the rooms and I go to a lot of meetings. Um, the time I had a sponsor, the best thing she did for me was make me go to 90 meetings in 90 days, even though it wasn't my first 90 days. And that was so useful. Finding the meetings that I liked and the ones I didn't like. And not getting hurt enough by something that was said in a meeting that I wouldn't come back. And then one thing I told myself is if this program doesn't work out, that doesn't mean that you're not an alcoholic and that you can stop start drinking. Like you can find different meetings or you can decide a program isn't for you and find a different way. But you're not giving up on this. Don't find an excuse to give up on this. Um, and I just want to thank Bridget for having me. I want to thank the testimony people. I want to thank everybody in the meetings that I see. I learned so much from you. And um, thank you for listening to my bunch of crap about who I am. But that's it. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>